So I pray as you lean into the weekend that you'll take a moment and give thanks to God for the freedoms that we have, but also be mindful of those that gave the ultimate sacrifice so that we could be uh, free people. Also wanted to share, we had a great celebration with Maddie Sheldon last week, and as we wrapped up our time together, uh, Phil Holloway led us in a time of prayer as we laid hands on uh, Maddie and, and just wanted to encourage her with a blessing and so grateful and We'll ask that you continue to pray for her and the other students that have graduated this year, that they find God's faithfulness in all things. We will celebrate communion after the message today, so please gather a small cup of juice and a piece of bread or a cracker so that you'll be prepared. And then as we do come to worship, this is Pentecost Sunday. It is the day we celebrate 50 days after Easter, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so as we come to worship, let us celebrate Pentecost. What happened that day when the Spirit arrived, when the Holy Spirit came? What happened then? It got loud, loud enough to be heard all over town. Fire appeared, divided and dispersed to each of them. The outsiders came running, and they heard the fire talkers tell of God's mighty works in their own language. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Rome, Jews, proselytes, Cretans, and Arabians. The Spirit had come to describe the glory of God in their native tongues through those who followed Christ. These representatives of the world stood astounded but curious, bewildered but ready. Then Peter showed them from the scripture exactly what it meant, revealing God's promise to all who trust in Jesus. And many believed, and many repented, and many were baptized, and many were saved. The Spirit had come. The church was born. So the church was born on that day, and we come together today as the church, whether here virtually online or in the building, to gather to worship the God that has created us. This is our third and final installment on our series called Esther for Such a Time. As we've looked the last couple weeks, I just want to remind you that this book of Esther is really extraordinary, partly because, and I don't know if you've realized it, and I don't know if you've read it along with us, but this book makes no mention of God. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But it's interesting that here we have a core text in the Old Testament, a book that is critical to our faith journey. In fact, as I've said, in the Jewish tradition, this book is read every year during the celebration of what took place in the book of Esther. It's the festival of Purim. The book of Esther is read in a community. And as I said last week, when it get to the point of mentioning Haman's name, people actually boo and hiss because he's the villain. It's an amazing literary work. And I'd point you to the folks at the Bible Project. In fact, there's a link here in the worship notes to a video that helps to explain just how this book was written. It really is a literary masterpiece of how it builds into the story. And then you have the main pivot and then it builds out from that and how the writer wants us to pay attention to the details of even though God isn't mentioned, 
how we see God show up in the small things. And as we are in this final week, we are talking about this amazing young woman named Esther. As we began the story, she was 14 years old probably, and now we're five years into it. So as I said last week, she's about the age of most of our high school graduates. And we think about all that's placed on her as a leader, it's incredibly humbling. And last week, I left you with a little bit of a cliffhanger, right? We met this guy, Haman, who ends up being the true villain of the story. And he, as the story was being wrapped up, had gotten the king to sign off on a decree allowing every Jewish person to be killed on the same day. And for those who killed the Jews, they were able to take their treasures. And that's how you can incentivize people doing bad things, by giving them someone else's property. We know Esther had begun to to work out a plan to ask the king to overturn this decree But what she didn't know at the moment, as she was strategically thinking it out and trying to put it together, is that Haman had decided to execute Mordecai, uh, Esther's uncle, and was going to do that the next morning. And he had already constructed a massive spike to impale him on. We left off last week in the same way that many great movies and many great stories do. For us modern folks, maybe it's The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, where it seems as though the bad guys are winning. Or and maybe for those that are a little bit younger, it's the, the story out of Marvel Universe on the Avengers and the Affinity War, where it looks as though Thanos, the bad guy, has won and that uh, the uh, Avengers are defeated. And what's interesting, again, as the literary device that's used here in the Book of Esther, it, it's true about many hero stories, right? There is sort of this reverse card that's played. If you take a look at Again, great movies like the Star Wars saga in The Return of the Jedi or in for our younger folks, the Marvel movies in the Avengers Endgame. It's really at that critical moment when we think everything is lost. In fact, probably one of the greatest moments in the theater that I can remember in a long time was in the movie Endgame. There's a moment where it looks as though it all is lost and Captain America is standing there in this wasteland of a battlefield, thinking that he is there to fight this battle by himself. And then there's a moment where Captain America hears in an earpiece that's in his ear, on your left. And at that point, all sorts of things begin to turn and a great battle shapes up with many reinforcements coming. And that's true of the story here with Esther, that God is about to turn things around and do a reverse play in, in Esther's story. Now, We left off last week with Haman having decided he was going to impale Mordecai the next morning. And then we get to chapter 6, where it opens with King Xerxes having some insomnia. He's having trouble sleeping. And rather than having some more milk, he asks his attendant to read back the history of his reign to him. And as he does that, he discovers that this uh, man Mordecai had early exposed a a plot to kill him. And then the king is reminded that he forgot to pay honor to Mordecai for the good work that he had done. And so for the sake of his own honor, he decides that he needs to make it right. And it just so happens at the same moment, the villain, Haman, happens to show up and he wants to get permission to execute Mordecai. So King Xerxes calls him in to get some ideas. And so here in chapter 6, verse 6, it begins, So Haman came in, and the king said, What should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Haman thought to himself, remember, he's all sorts of full of himself, Whom would the king wish to honor more than me? 
verse 7. So he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on its head. Right? This guy Haman is, uh, he's not greedy, is he? Are you kidding me? He is so full of himself. And in fact, if we really understand it, his suggestions here go far beyond what would normally be done by the king to honor someone. And then the things he suggested, these things would only be done for a king. And in their culture at the time, these weren't just the king's clothes. They were part of the king, just like his horse was part of who he was. When people saw the king's horse, it essentially was seen as the portable throne, if you will. He's essentially tipped his hand that really what Haman wants is he wants to be king. Continuing with verse 9. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robe and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the official shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Excellent, said the king to Haman. Quick, take the robes and my horse and do just as you have said for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the gate of the palace. Leave out nothing you have suggested. Well, you can only imagine how stunned uh, Haman was at this moment because of this first reversal. He thought he was going to be honored, and he turns out he's got to go honor Mordecai. This actually has to be a nightmare of a scenario for him. Not only was Haman not going to be able to execute Mordecai, here he is the one doing for Mordecai all that he thought he was going to receive. But he had no choice, so he did it all. And then here in Esther chapter 6, verse 12, it says, Haman hurried home dejected and completely humiliated. Remember last week he was egged on by his wife and friends to make this large pole in which to impale uh, Mordecai. And yet at the same time as we see them here, they now say, well, you really need to back off uh, because it would be fatal for you to try to kill him. But while they were telling him all that, Haman was summoned back to the palace for the second banquet with Queen Esther and King Xerxes. Continuing here in chapter 7, On this second occasion, while they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, Tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it's half the kingdom. Again, Esther showed great patience, and that patience resulted in King Xerxes making the same promise again, which he had done multiple times over multiple days, where she was appealing to his emotions. And then it set the stage for it to be difficult for the king to go back on his word and to say no. Continuing here in verse 3, Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. And we know, right, from our previous study here, that Esther and her people are in danger because the king, King Xerxes, he was the only one that had the power to make it happen. He had signed off on this death decree that Haman had asked for. While he may not have known that she was a Jew at the time, he certainly knew what he was doing when he okayed this genocide, even if it wasn't his idea. Again, the brilliance of this young woman, she shows it as she approaches the king. She uses a passive voice that avoided pointing any blame at him. In fact, her wording here, including the part about selling them as slaves, all painted the picture of this being a a very treasonous act against the king. 
And so she was giving him a way out. And then Haman, he has to realize in the midst of this of what's happening, his terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day was about to get even worse. And he had to have a deep sense of that going on here with verse 5. Who would do such a thing, King Xerxes demanded? Who would be presumptuous as to touch you? Esther replied, this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. And then the king jumped to his feet in rage and went out into the palace garden. The king more than likely still had a little bit of a hangover. And he needed to collect his thoughts and to process what he just heard and what he just learned. And it seems in the moment, though, right, questionable to leave Esther alone with the guy who was trying to kill her people. He had never been that kind of great guy. Again, continuing here, Haman, however, stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther, for he knew that the king intended to kill him. So let's say as clearly as we can, Haman knew he was a dead man. The king couldn't come back from this. His only chance was to find mercy from Queen Esther. Again, verse 8, in despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining, just as the king was returning from the palace garden. Awkward, (laughs) because in his panic, as he falls, and he lands on Queen Esther's couch, and that couldn't look good for him either. In fact, it goes on to say, the king exclaimed, will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my very eyes? This is crazy, right? Even beyond appearance sake. Another version of scripture translates this about how he would uh, ravish her. Well, what's happening here? The king basically is accusing Haman of sexual assault. This is just crazy. And it's crazy. It's a story of scripture, right? And it goes on to say, as soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. Picking up again with verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Haman has set up a sharpened pole with stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard. He intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination. Then impale Haman on it, the king ordered. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. So this guy Haman, who is our villain, deserving death, was executed for a crime that he didn't commit on a pole he had planned to kill Mordecai on. It's the ultimate reversal, right? Here's the thing. Scholars mostly agree that the king didn't actually think Haman was doing anything to Queen Esther in front of him. How foolish would Haman have been to do that? But what it did, as the story plays it out, it gave the king a perfect out. He could execute the man who tried to kill the Jews, and more importantly, his queen, without even mentioning that part of the story. And that way, he avoided anyone connecting his involvement with it kept his hands clean, if you will. So what? We have our happily ever after ending to the story, right? Well, not so much yet. King Xerxes maybe thinks that. He even gave all of Haman's property to Esther. Except there's one thing. Just because Haman was dead, it didn't change the fact that there was an official decree still hanging out there that would allow all people to kill the Jews. So once again, Queen Esther comes to the king And once again, he holds out the scepter that says she's allowed to speak. And then she wasted no time this time. Beginning with verse 5 of chapter 8, Esther said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor with him, and if he thinks it is right, and if I am pleasing to him, let there be a decree that reverses the orders of Haman, son of Hamadetha, the Agite, who ordered the Jews throughout all the king's provinces should be destroyed. 
For how can I endure to see my people and my family slaughtered and destroyed? Again, Esther was showed her brilliance here by putting all the blame on Haman. Again, continuing with verse 7, Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and Mordecai, the Jew, I have given Esther the property of Haman, and he has been impaled on a pole because he tried to destroy the Jews. And if we read this in context, it seems as though King Xerxes was getting a little defensive because in his mind, it was all over. Basically, he had dealt with Haman's treason, and he had put him to death, and Queen Esther was safe, and so he didn't really care about the Jewish people. Now, continue with verse 8. Now go ahead and send a message to the Jews in the king's name, telling them whatever you want, and seal it with the king's signet ring. But remember that whatever has already been written in the king's name and sealed with his signet ring can never be revoked. So here's part of the problem. King Xerxes is reminding them that what he wrote earlier can't be revoked. It was law, and even he as king couldn't undo it. However, what he did say is, okay, basically you come up with whatever you want to circumvent it, and I'll sign off on it. So that's when Mordecai, he uses this opportunity to write a decree that allows the Jews to unite and arm themselves to defend themselves from anyone who would try to kill them, which is then sent out as a missive to all the rest of the nation. Continuing here in verse 16, the Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honored everywhere. In every province and city, wherever the king's decree arrived, the Jews rejoiced and had a great celebration and declared a public festival and holiday. In the last two chapters of this book, it describes for us the Jewish people's defense of themselves. And it establishes this festival of Purim, which is this annual holiday that we've mentioned that celebrates Queen Esther's story and her heroism for her nation. So that has to create the question, why do we celebrate the story today? And here's where I want to just dive in a little bit, because even though it's more than 2,000 years old, it still has some incredible truths for us. So this may appear as a secular story, and it may appear as though there's all these random coincidences. The structure, the literary structure of this book is really important to us, because how it's recounted to us really matters. And though, as I mentioned at the beginning, God's name is not mentioned in all of the, the writings of this book, we have, what, the downfall of Queen Vashti, and then we have the rise of Queen Esther. We have Mordecai's discovery of the attempt on the king's life. And then we have this crazy short-lived exaltation of Haman. And then we have the insomnia of the king. And then we have the book that's read to the king that reminds him of Mordecai's uh, heroism, and then we have the exaltation of the Jewish people, all of this really points out to the fact that God is always working. All of this points out to us God's providence, his, his handiwork, his, his working in the design of our lives, of literally moving history towards his redemptive end. It's interesting that in this story, by never hearing the name God mentioned, at the same time, it helps us understand that this author who wrote the book of Esther is making a profound statement that he wants us to understand, showing us this simple fact that God is always at work in everything to save his people. In fact, the Bible Project says this, it's a technique meant to push you, the reader, to explore God's providence even in the darkest moments of history. For all of us, our story is Esther's story. 
our story of where we find ourselves, even today, the things that we're leaning into, the things we're walking through, the confidence that we need in the midst of our conflict, in the midst of our brokenness, the idea that God is present and even in the midst of the messiness. And so what we have here, as we look at this story, as we read Esther, we can see God's activity. We are doing exactly what the author intended us to do, that we would think through the events and think through our own lives' events of where things seem to be unjust and where it seems as though God hasn't shown up. And yet we know that he is working. That's sort of what underpins all that we understand. That's really, really important. So the, the book is anything but secular. When we read the book of Esther, we are reminded in our own lives and the story that we're living of how God is working in the details of how he's working behind the scenes, about the relationships we have, about the people we depend upon. And even when we're facing difficulties, a health issue or financial issues, is that we can place our trust in God and his providence, even when we can't see it, even when we don't understand what's happening. And so this message of Esther calls us to a deeper level of faith, if you will, that no matter what's going on, no matter how horrible things get, that God is committed to redeeming his people and to bringing salvation. A couple ideas I want to suggest then to ponder, to take away from this great story. The first is that God's in control. And that's maybe the biggest lesson of the book of Esther, that God is in control. And even though we didn't hear him, we see how he works through this. Uh, Even though he's not directly mentioned, uh, yet Esther is celebrated to this very day as a story of God showing up and delivering his people. And why is that? Well, because even though he is unseen, it is clear that God orchestrated everything. He takes Esther's tragedy and he puts her in a place to save her people. And then all the reversals that we looked at, all the tension between Haman and Mordecai and how things change, it's incredible. These are not just coincidences, these are God working. The writer of Ecclesiastes helps us to see that. Right? Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says, Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. And that's it, right? God makes everything beautiful in its time. That's what that verse is telling us. That even in the midst of our brokenness, even in the midst of our messiness, even in the midst of the horrors of what takes place in Esther's life, the fear of death, the abuse that she sustained, what others meant for evil, what happens? God turns it into something beautiful. And that's why I love this verse in this final part where it says we can't see the scope of God's work because it's hard in the moment when we're experiencing pain to see how God could transform it into something good. But We need to see his view, his scope, his direction is so much greater than ours. Many times, and that's why community is so important, and that's why when we're in pain, we don't see the full scope of it in the moment. And that's why going to the doctor and going through the procedures is all part of it. In the moment, it's messy and painful. But when we see how God shows up in it, we can see that he's in control and realize that he's doing it for our good. And so not only is God in control, but also then there's the second fundamental point is that we need to obey God. I don't know about you, but when I see that word obey, I get a little tense because my pride doesn't really like it. 
Uh, we want to be in control of our own lives. But following God's law, following God's word, it really means letting him be in control of everything, including us. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, obey my commandments. So we have Queen Esther here, who is a hero to us, in part because she obeyed God. Yes, God isn't directly referenced in the book again, but we know at the very beginning she prayed when she called for a fast, right? And as a Jewish girl, she would have been taught about God. She knew what God wanted her to do, and she obeyed even though it came at great personal risk. She battled evil, she fought for justice, and she spoke up for those who were in danger. One of the most convincing scriptures I can think of comes to us from James chapter 4, verse 17, where it says, Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. So what does that mean? It's this, that we show our love to God when we are obedient, when we obey. Not just when we're directly told, but when we know what we need to do and we face a choice of whether to do it, Queen Esther knew the right thing to do and she did it. So fundamentally here is this, is that God is in control. And as hard as whatever it is that we might be facing, whatever you're walking through or what I'm walking through, or maybe what we will face, what we can know is this, that we can obey God and we can do that with confidence because he is the one that's in control. And so on this Pentecost Sunday, we can be reminded that it, this isn't about us doing it on our own, that we have been given a helper, as Jesus said. As he left and ascended, he reminded all that he was sending the helper to encourage us, to walk with us in those moments when we're unsure, to be able to trust. And so it's the power of the Holy Spirit that we lean into today. And so let's pray. Father, on this Pentecost Sunday, we thank you for sending the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Jesus, for your power that ascended on high, and we thank you for the restoration that brings to us, and we thank you too, Holy Spirit, for your presence in our lives. And we pray that, that the story of Esther can encourage us to trust you in all things, and we just pray it in your strong name now. Amen. Let's prepare ourselves for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Good morning, Linda Road. Thank you for joining us this Sunday morning for communion. We are Lynn and Dan Feldman. This is the joyful feast of the people of God. People will come from east and west, from north and south, to sit at the table of the kingdom of God. The Lord Jesus, on the night of his arrest, took bread, and after giving thanks to God, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood shed for you in the forgiveness of sins whenever you drink it do this in remembrance of me for every time you eat this bread drink this cup you proclaim the saving death of the risen lord until he comes again 
Please join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this day, for this time together to enjoy communion in remembrance of your sacrifice for us. We ask your blessings on this church and on the people and that you would help us to stay upon the path that you have set before us this day and every day. We love you and the blessings that you bestow upon us. And these things we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. The body of Christ given for you. The body of Christ given for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. The blood of Christ was shed for you. Please join us in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who, who art, art in heaven, heaven hallowed be thy, thy name. Thy, thy kingdom, kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth, earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.